This is Ron Stockton. This podcast is called The Nine Commandments, which is weird because everyone knows there are Ten Commandments. But hang in, there's more to be said. This podcast takes me back to September 1989. My pastor at the time, Frank Marvin, of blessed memory, was not only a clergyman but also a student of Christianity. He had taken a doctorate in religious history from the University of Michigan. While he was in his program, he met a professor named David Friedman. Friedman was the editor of the Anchor Bible. That was a series of 66 books for translation and exegesis, that means analysis or explanation, of which 47 were completed at the time. Friedman was a senior scholar. Today, there's a significant award that carries his name. He was born Jewish but converted to Christianity early, became a Presbyterian pastor, and taught in a seminary for a time. Reverend Marvin asked him if he would speak to our church in Dearborn. I remember him as a thin, very dignified-looking person. He was accompanied by a young female assistant. He was 67 and lived another 19 years, but he had glaucoma and was nearing blindness. She was his driver. The talk was at Cherry Hill Presbyterian Church in Dearborn, where I live. I took extensive notes, which is why I am able to present this podcast to you. Friedman presented a totally different approach to the structure of the Bible from the one I was used to. Here is my summary of his talk, which he entitled, The Nine Commandments. As I record this podcast, I have just seen an interview with Jack Miles, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of God, a biography. Miles has just written a book on God in the Quran. He was asked from the floor whether there were cultural differences within Islam, for example, between that in Indonesia and that in Tunisia. Miles said that was a legitimate line of inquiry, but it was not what he did. He noted that there was a Danish history in Latin that had a section on a prince named Hamlet who killed his uncle because he believed the uncle had killed his father. Miles said one could approach Hamlet from that historical perspective, but it was very different from taking a literary approach to the play. He noted that there were indeed different manifestations of Islam in countries different in different countries. He recommended a book on the subject, but said that was not what he did. Likewise, Friedman said he was an editor. He looks at the Bible as an editor would look at it. The books of the Bible were not books, but were scrolls. The longest is 25,000 words. The first nine are a unit. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Ruth was not one of these, but was put after Judges because of its opening line. This is in the era of the Judges. The editors must have thought that putting it elsewhere would confuse people. Samuel and Kings were one scroll split into two books for reasons of length. These are primary history. He says they are epics in the sense of Gone with the Wind or War and Peace. Friedman talks of editors and what they do, he being one, and of how they can shape a work by reorganizing it or emphasizing certain parts. They are not allowed to change or modify the text, just organize it. He thinks these nine books constitute a single unit. 
the story of the Hebrew people. It goes from the beginning to the end, the exile. The story is a tragedy, a disaster. The experiment is over. It has failed. The people are in exile. Jerusalem has fallen. The Iliad is a story told from the point of view of the victors. The Bible is a story told from the point of view of the losers. It is as if the Trojans had written the Iliad. These scrolls were written separately, but were then brought together in a single book commonly called the Bible. We assume that they were originally in the order that we know them today, but originally they were distinctive. Each one was separate. There was no order. That is where the editors come in. They were the ones who decided the order. And here is where Friedman moves into his talk. As an editor, he can see what they did and why the books are in the order that they are in. For example, look at the book of Genesis. The first 11 chapters of Genesis have four stories. These are all the same story in a thematic sense. They contain a beginning and an end. They reveal the end of history. A common meaning is repeated in each. Each begins with a happy situation that ends with ruin, ruin brought about by humans. Eden ends with banishment and exile. Cain and Abel end with banishment and exile. The story of Noah ends with the flood and destruction. The Tower of Babel starts with an advanced society, but ends with dispersion. Uh, Babel, he notes, was the name for Babylon, the site of exile. It was being read to those in exile. The story of humans begins with Babel and ends much later in Babylon, in exile, the same place. Chapter 12 of Genesis begins the story of Abraham, the patriarch. This is a new story. By the time of Babylon, the Israelites had lost their land, their temple, and their priesthood. This is not a tragedy in a Greek sense. It is a morality story of good and evil. Quoting Amos, you only of all the earth have I loved. Therefore, I will visit upon you all your iniquities. Ouch. The Assyrians destroy the northern kingdom. Babylon destroys the southern kingdom. Friedman notes that there are nine books and ten commandments. How would an editor organize the story to have excitement and suspense? Well, there are stages. First, the Israelites ratify the covenant. Then they violate the commandments one by one, in order. They are often on the verge of disaster, but are snatched back by God. In each case, they lose a little credibility. In the end, they lose acceptability and are in exile. At this point, Friedman presents a thesis. There are nine books for ten commandments. He believes the editor made the Hebrews violate one commandment in each book, so there is a succession of offenses. But to do this, the editor must make one commandment vanish. Plus, Genesis cannot involve breaking a commandment since they do not ratify the covenant until Exodus. There is also the problem of commandments 6, 7, and 8, murder, adultery, and theft. These are in different order in different texts. The commandments are given in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. In Exodus 24, the Hebrews ratify the covenant. 
offer sacrifices, and have a common meal, i.e. communion. We hear and obey. That is the response. In Exodus, in Exodus 25 to 31, Moses confers with God regarding the tabernacle. In Exodus 32, God tells Moses, your people have broken the covenant. This was the incident of the golden calf. Moses turned his back on the tribes. Moses turned on turned his back and the tribes switched gods. We now have the offense of apostasy, commandment 1, abandoning God, and idolatry, commandment 2, worshiping an object. Both are broken at once. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. God threatens destruction, but Moses intervenes and the people are saved. Commandment 3. This involves using the name of God in vain. Using God's name was originally an exculpatory oath. If the evidence in a trial was non-definitive, the defendant could claim the oath of God, proclaiming innocence, and go free. God would judge such people, but humans would not. But the meaning of the commandment changed over time. The later com common meaning of this offense was to attack God or use the name of God to attack others. Consider Leviticus 24, 10 to 12. An Israelite whose father is an Egyptian curses God. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, have no penalties. Moses asks God what to do. The story is an etiology to show how penalties were evolved. God declares that all who heard the curse must testify and the whole community must stone him. Thus the community escapes punishment for individual crimes. Commandment 4. Observe the Sabbath. Originally this meant do not violate the Sabbath with remunerative labor. In Numbers 15.32 on, a man gathers wood on the Sabbath. He must be stoned. Commandment 5. Honor your father and mother so your days may be long in your father's house. This refers to disobedience and rebellion. It applied only to male children. Deuteronomy 21 offers further details. If parents have an adult son who is rebellious, the elders should examine the son and the parents. If the son continues with his disobedience, he will be killed. This is probably humane, since the parents had the right to kill a child. Here the elders decide. In a sense, this is a warning against parental abuse. Commandments 6, 7, and 8. These contain the offenses of murder, adultery, and theft. The order of these offenses is different in different places. Jeremiah specifies the order as theft, murder, adultery. Scholars believe Baruch the scribe who wrote Jeremiah, or was it dictated to him by an angel? Well, you decide. Got the order from some text. Stealing is the next commandment. It does not have a death penalty. Why is it life-threatening to the community? Joshua 7 tells a story. After the fall of Jericho, the armies attack the town of Ai and are defeated. God says the defeat is due to sin. 
God had ordered that all the booty from Jericho should go to God, i.e. to the priests. All the soldiers obeyed, except one. Achan kept a beautiful metal sculpture and a beautiful cloth. God's anger threatened the existence of the whole community. Achan was exposed and executed. Adultery is commandment eight. There is only one story of adultery in the whole book, in the whole Hebrew Bible. This is the adultery of David with Bathsheba, the wife of one of his commanders. David arranged to have him killed in battle. This is a grievous abuse of power to have your own commander executed. As we Americans might say, it is an impeachable offense. Nathan renounces David. David receives grievous punishment. The child he has conceived with Bathsheba dies, and his offense is to be known throughout all of Israel, i.e. permanently, even into the future. It is also a turning point in David's reign. The revolt of his sons follows. The kingdom collapses. Commandment 9 focuses upon bearing false witness. There is only one story of false testimony in the whole Hebrew Bible, that of Naboth's vineyard. When Naboth refused to sell his vineyard to the king, he was falsely accused of treason and apostasy and was executed. Suborning perjury might be a better term for what happened. Ahab and Jezebel confiscate the vineyard after the execution. This is judicial murder, an unjust execution by the authorities for their own benefit. The prophet Elijah renounces the king. Ahab repents, but the kingdom collapses. So far there are nine commandments in nine books. Both Judah and Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms, are doomed. And yet there is still commandment 10. It deals with coveting. According to Jesus, coveting is as bad as all the other offenses. But the treatment of the offense in the Hebrew text is different. And here Friedman presents another thesis. Commandments 6, 7, 8, and 9 murder, adultery, false witness, and theft, all grow from ten. Coveting is a serious offense to be punished by God, but it is not a crime. It is a sin of the heart. If you do not act, you cannot be convicted. Corpus delecti, there must be evidence of an offense. You must commit the act to be guilty. There is no example of coveting as a punishable offense. Coveting is not a crime. It is a sin. Friedman has reached the end of his presentation, saying that the epic is complete, except for the final catastrophe. At this point, the next violation will produce disaster. The story is over, except for the tragic outcome, which is inevitable. Thank you for listening.